Hello and welcome to In the Envelope, an awards interview podcast. I am your host, Jack Smart, awards editor at Backstage, the most trusted name in casting. I'm here to spotlight some of the most exciting film, television, and theater awards contenders working today. Who is in the running? What makes an awards-worthy performance? And what, dear listeners, are the secrets to giving one? We're sitting down for intimate, inspirational interviews with actors and artists to get that insider's perspective on these questions and more. It's an opportunity for some of today's most talented stars to share their craft and career advice, and maybe, just maybe, provide a tantalizing glimpse in the envelope. I was constantly yeah. like being put in rooms that were actually the wrong rooms for me to be in. Sure. Like mm. trying to convince people like, no, I could be Joe Schmo's daughter. You know, I could be peppy. Like whatever the, the qualities are when you're like, oh, they really wanted a different actress. Zoe Kazan is here. Jamie. Yeah, I know. Well, she was. Zoe Kazan just left. Yeah. And here we are. As we said, I actually don't know. I straight up don't even remember if we said this while the microphones were recording, but Zoe Kazan is really good friends with friend of the podcast, Betty Gilpin, mm-hmm. and also Kristen Milioti, two actresses who I really, really enjoy talking to. Yeah. So I went into this um, stoked about being able to talk to her. And I've been a really big fan of Zoe for for a long time. Actually, I've, I was first a fan of her writing because I saw more than one of her plays off-Broadway, actually. And Broadway audiences know her really well. She's been on stage a lot. She's written a lot of plays. But yeah, now she's been, um, she's a bit of a movie star now. And we've spoken to a lot of people that she's worked with. Yeah, and probably The the Big Sick was the thing that launched her, maybe? Is the that big what you sick, say? The Big Sick, yeah. yeah. Um, that is probably her best-known role. I actually really thought that she was like close to an Oscar nomination for that and like should have been nominated for that. She was mm. so terrific. Yeah. She spent the middle third of that movie in a coma and we as an audience were really still rooting for her and for this rom-com to work out. That was such an um, such an excellent rom-com. Yeah. Um and so yeah, we've spoken to her collaborator Camille Nanjiani from that film, both James Franco and Maggie Gyllenhaal th- from The Deuce, yeah. which she has a small part in. So she's a writer and actor, and I always really love talking to writers who act and actors who write. And this year, she's another one where she's on TV, but she mostly has two films, one of which she's written and one of which she's starring in. Uh, The one she's starring in is the Coen Brothers movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. You have not seen this film. No. Right? No, I haven't. But you're going to. I am. Absolutely. It's a Coen Brothers film. Of course I am. It's the Coen Brothers. Yeah. And as she said, that, that comes with a certain cachet of like, Oh, this is, yeah, this is going to be great. It's going to yeah. be huge. And it's one thing worth noting about the film. It was, it was actually designed as a miniseries so that, and as an anthologized miniseries, it's, I believe, six different stories. And they're all don't really have anything to do with each other, except that they're all in the Old West, pretty much. Right. And so in hers, she plays this woman who's on the Oregon Trail, um, traveling with her brother and his dog. And many different challenges and twists happen along the way. And as it's the Coen brothers, there's <laughs> sometimes bleak, violent twists. <laughs> yes. 
Um, and the other one is Wildlife, which she co-wrote and co-produced with Paul Dano, IFC Films' new film starring Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal, which is about a marriage falling apart, but it's told from the perspective of the teenage son who's kind of watching it fall apart. It's set in 1960, and it is based on the novel of the same name by Richard Ford. Mm. And it's it's terrific. It's the Paul Dano Zoe Kazan world is it's kind of a good continuation of that. And boy, did she give us a lot of insights into her into her process. Oh yeah, right? I know. I thought it was Sometimes fascinating. Very specific. Yeah, I thought she ha- had a really interesting perspective because she's at that intersection of writer and actor, um, mm-hmm. and also you know she talked about the casting process from both sides as well. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And that sort of analytical, constant refinement of the process, which is very writerly, she was applying to the acting world, which I thought was fascinating too. Totally. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And how sometimes you want want to put a name to it and have it be a a conscious thing, but other times you want your unconscious to... We talked a lot about the Stanislavski Mm. idea of doing all of your homework and all of your prep, and she had some really great specifics about that. But then the idea of letting it all go when you're on set or on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we covered a lot of basics, but she also said some things that I've never heard about. Like, all that stuff about breath. Mm. What? That was so cool. But um, Zoe Kazan, yeah, this was terrific. I knew it would be. Yeah. But she, I'm really amazed at the amount of specificity. She, I really feel like there were a couple instances where I was like, are you sure you want to be telling us that yeah. secret? Yeah. Um, about how you, how specifically for a project, how you got to a certain place, but also in general, how you go about doing something and... I learned a lot listening to this. So, like you, like you say, there's definitely a connection between Kristen and Betty's episode two, where they're all actors that are in the trenches working it right now, as opposed to looking oh back on a career. And some, you know? re- there was just some really fun audition horror story stuff. Yeah, which is always good to hear. Um, and Zoe is on both sides of the table, and again, that's just really helpful for actors to hear about. She's been through the casting. She's she's on the writing side of things. So, mm. let's get to it. All right. And everybody go see Wildlife and Ballad of Buster Scruggs because they're both great. Hey, are you ready? Yes, you, listener. Are you ready to take the advice and the inspiration you've heard here in today's interview and use it in your own acting career? Is it something maybe you've always considered doing? Are you at the very beginning of your acting career? Are you well into your acting career and you're a fan of this podcast and you're ready to take those next steps? Backstage is here for you. This podcast is brought to you by Backstage and what we are offering listeners to this podcast is a free 30-day trial. That's right. We are giving you 30 days completely free to try out Backstage. All you need to do is go to checkout, backstage.com slash subscribe, and enter the code ENVELOPE. That's right. If you enter the code ENVELOPE at checkout, E-N-V-E-L-O-P-E, that's how you spell ENVELOPE, you get 30 free days on backstage.com. Browse our thousands of casting notices. Learn why it's the world's number one casting platform. If you are an actor and you haven't signed up yet for Backstage, I don't know what to tell you. Get on it. Zoe Kazan is a writer and actor beloved by audiences of both stage and screen. You may know her from the feature film she wrote and starred in, Ruby Sparks, or for her performances in Revolutionary Road, It's Complicated, Last Year's The Big Sick, and the miniseries Olive Kittredge, which earned her a Primetime Emmy nomination. This year, she's both the writer and producer behind IFC Films' Wildlife, 
and she's one of the stars of the Coen Brothers Netflix western, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Here it is, our interview with the wonderful Zoe Kazan. I would love to hear about your writing process to the extent that you may have one. Great, let's do it. Because <laughs> I imagine it's a little different every time. Like your works are all all pretty different. Mm-hmm. I've seen and I've seen enough of them. Was this one of the first times that you've adapted? It's the only time I've adapted. Okay, for yeah. the screen, no yes. Less. But does that is that different? Is that more of a responsibility? Gosh, it is different. Well, it was different for me in two ways. First, it's the first time that I've written something for someone to direct. We always knew when we optioned mm-hmm. the book, we knew Paul would direct it. Gotcha. And so uh, I had his sensibility in mind mm. always when I was writing. Mm. I guess it was new for me in three ways because it's the first time I've written with someone, which was right. totally different. Uh, okay. And then it was also the first time I've adapted. So... It was a really new process. Usually when I'm writing, like when I wrote Ruby Sparks, like I'll have an idea. It'll come to me sort of in a flash. Oh, cool. I'll write down like as much as I can in the moment or in the days that follow. Like on Ruby Sparks, I probably wrote the first 25 pages or something in a few days. And then I didn't really have time to work on it more than so I put it on the back burner, Mm. and I thought about it for about a year, maybe a year and a half. And then then I had a little chunk of time, and so I sat down and I wrote it, and I write very quickly normally, and then I rewrite for a long time. So I wrote my first draft on it probably in like 10 days or so, Mm. and then I rewrote for almost a year until we were in production. And on this, like, I just couldn't do my normal process. Like, uh, almost everything I've written has come in that, like, kind of, like, come in a flash, worked on for a long time, noodled with Mm -hmm. by myself. And, yeah, totally by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And in this, like, at first, the first exciting thing about it to me was what a puzzle it was. Like, the book is told from, the book Wildlife is about a family falling apart in Montana in 1960, mm-hmm. and it's all told through the teenage son's viewpoint. But it's told sort of in the book, it's told from the present tense, like the adult man mm-hmm. looking back on his life as a teenager. Um, and it's mm-hmm. incredibly spare. There's not a lot of emotional information mm-hmm. in the way that things are described. Um, it's sort of like this clear pane of glass that you're meant to look through. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's very challenging, you know, when your protagonist's main job is watching in a book. Sure. It's not great for the screen, sure. right? You're supposed to have a active protagonist. So I kept mm. saying to Paul, like, we have to weaponize his watching. We have to Ooh. make his observation something that is active. And also, we have to understand that his parents are putting him in this passive position. It's not that he's a passive uh-huh. person. It's that he's, like, in an incredibly helpless position. Mm-hmm. Um, but just figuring out, like, how to make it cinematic, how to mm-hmm. break it down and uh, which things should be scenes and which things can just be images and mm-hmm. oh, what cool. you can lose altogether from the book. It was a really long process 
between Paul and I. Mm -hmm. um, we optioned the book ourselves, so we didn't have like a ticking clock other than the ticking gotcha. clock of the option. There was no one like waiting around for us to finish our work. Hmm. Um, and that was really useful. It meant that we um, that we got a lot of time to like experiment and put it away for a while. Like we both, you know, we started writing, we started working on it in 2013, I think. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, it was like about a three-year writing process before we were in yeah. production. Um, and that's what you mean by experimenting. You're, you're writing several different versions of... Yeah, and also like sometimes one, one person would be unemployed and the other one mm -hmm. would be employed. And so one person sure. would like take it for a while. And hmm. um, Cool. Yeah, I don't know. It was just a, it was a really organic process. The hardest part was probably knowing when to stop. To stop revising? Yeah. Oh. And is that knowing when? Is that just like a skill that you have to learn as a writer about when to stop? Yeah. I mean, I felt like my personal writing process transformed immensely um, when I uh, read Stephen King's book on writing. Uh-huh. Have you yeah. read that? Um, no. It's wonderful. Yeah. And he writes in it. He advises all writers, and he's talking about prose writers, but it's applicable. Um, he he advises putting away a first draft when you're done with it mm. for six to eight weeks in a sealed envelope and mm -hmm. not looking at it at all, um, and then coming back to it with fresh eyes with a pencil and editing with fresh okay. eyes. Huh. Um, and before that, I used to be like a real tinkerer. Like I'd wake up in the middle of the night and uh -huh. be like, mm, maybe I'll just take a look at that scene. Uh -huh. It's um, And I think you can do a lot of damage like that. Yeah, um, it's not the healthiest thing. No, it's not. And it's really, um, especially when you're like, I don't know, as an actor, like you're so helpless so much of the time, right? Yes. Um, that that having the power as a writer to go and do your work at any time feels wonderful. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, I see. And so, you know, once I s made a rule for myself that I wasn't allowed to do that anymore, once I started doing the Stephen King thing, uh, okay. things really changed for me. Um, hmm. And I think my writing got a lot better and also my, my relationship to my writing got better. And that made cool. it a lot easier to know when to stop. Gotcha. That's always good to hear, especially for listeners of this podcast about like, you do see writing as an empowering tool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It changed my life. Yeah. Yeah. Were you originally just, I mean, how did you get into all this? What was the beginning? Did you always know it was acting or? Well, I was a little kid who was, I think, probably um, the kind of kid that adults say is precocious. Okay. <laughs> um, I was a very verbal um, kid and a big reader, and mm -hmm. um, I started wanting to tell stories before I could write. Like I used mm -hmm. to tell stories with my stickers mm -hmm. and um, have my parents write out the narration. You know, oh, cool. um, <laughs> so I was. Your very, parents are storytellers as well. My parents are both screenwriters, yeah. and um, I think probably if I had been born into a different household, that wouldn't have been fostered mm -hmm. in me, but it definitely was fostered and protected mm -hmm. and rewarded. Yeah. Um, and so as a kid, I thought I wanted to be a writer like my parents. And then when I was probably in middle school, I 
it really like dawned on me for the first time that acting was a job. Like, oh, cool. We watched a bunch of movies in a row that had the same actors in them. Mm-hmm. And I kind of went like, oh, you can be different all the time. Like, mm. it was like, I had always known it was a job. I'm not yeah. stupid. No, it's like you kind of took it for granted. Yeah. yeah sure. You know, you're watching personalities on screen and yeah. you're, in, I think as a kid, you're really encountering the story. You know, I think kids are very mm-hmm. interested in narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm. um, it was the first time that it occurred to me that, like, you could play pretend for a living and that seemed right. really exciting and I had this kind of magical experience Mm. acting in my first school play when I was 14 Mm -hmm. where I actually had like some approximation of what my adult pleasure is in acting. Like, Oh, amazing. Yeah, I had a kind of weird like – and then I didn't have that experience for years afterwards. Like six years went by before I felt that again. But where I felt a real like – the text was providing my imaginary circumstances were such that mm. the text could provide exactly the next thing that I wanted to say organically. Uh, like it was like cool. a magical experience. What was and this first play? It was um, A.R. Gurney's The Dining Room. Okay. Um, huh. And actors play like multiple parts in it. So I played like, I don't know, six to eight roles in okay. it. And hmm. I don't know. It was like, and it was like, um, finding a superpower or something mm-hmm. like I felt so lit yeah. up and um but that's so funny that it didn't you didn't then recapture it at the next well I think thing. that that happens like it's like what Picasso says about um like you know you uh, spending his whole life trying to learn to paint like a child again you mm-hmm. know like I think once because once I I acted in that play um people at school were like oh you're good at acting mm-hmm. and then like um once I had that idea in my head, I was like reading acting books. And mm-hmm. I think like I got in my head, I think it happens to totally. a lot of yeah. young performers mm-hmm. um, sure, or young artists, period. Um, you get, you try to get the same praise that you got instead of just exploring, yes. you know, for totally. your own pleasure, like whatever the mm-hmm. thing is. Maybe people who are less people pleasing than I have <laughs> less of that experience, but I really... Uh. Um, had it and then it's like the destination rather than the journey it should yeah, be about the journey I think so yeah. and also I think it had I think like you know being praised makes you want to be good at something and mm. um, wanting to be good at something at least for me at that age meant like trying to study up do my homework yeah. you know be a good student that's awesome. And that's not always the best thing for your work. Maybe um, not at that stage, no. No. So, um, like, like there's this thing, this famous thing, a story that Stanislavski, like, on his deathbed mm-hmm. said, like, oh, I've been teaching my method all wrong all these years. I <laughs> should have been telling people, do all of the work I tell you and then go on stage and forget all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think at that age, I didn't know how to do that final oh, yeah. step of forgetting, mm-hmm. right? Totally. So, I yeah. mean, it's still hard for me, but I really didn't know how to do it then. Um, yeah. Uh, anyways, I think because I <laughs> am such a serious person, I thought, uh, I thought, oh, if I want to be an actor, I have to do that 100%. 
and I mm. can't write anymore. Like oh, okay. I shouldn't be splitting my energy. Mm. Um, and at that point, there weren't, you know, it wasn't like I had a lot of models of actors who were also writers, yeah. right? Like That's now true. there are a lot of them. Yeah. But at that time, even when I was first starting out in my career, like even in my early 20s, it's not like there were, t- it was like Ethan Hawke and that was kind of it. Right. Um, so. Like idea of the multi-hyphenate artist. Yes. Has become more recently a phenomenon. Way, way more. Yeah. Um, so I thought like, okay, if I want to do this seriously, I have to do it seriously. But then I was in college and I took a bunch of writing classes in college and I started a play um, in class uh, under Donald Margulies, the playwright mm-hmm. and screenwriter. He was your professor? He was my professor. Oh, my and I got to tell you, he was a <laughs> wonderful teacher. Mm-hmm. He's a wonderful writer. And um, those things don't always go hand in hand, but they did with sure. him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started a play under his tutelage that then in my early 20s when I was first starting out in acting. And like, I can't, to, to anyone who listens to this who isn't an actor mm-hmm. like i cannot describe how demoralizing those first years can be <laughs> like it's really hard to live or die based on like whether the casting director thought you were good even though oh, yeah. you didn't get the part mm-hmm. like for for about two years it was like just me trying so hard like working sometimes and being so lucky to work sometimes mm-hmm. But, like, trying so hard not to get discouraged, going on a million auditions, mm-hmm. getting close but no cigar on so many things. And This is the stuff we love to hear about on yeah, this podcast. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the failures. I mean, honestly, I think it's really useful. Absolutely. I think failure is really useful. And, and, the, so, and not getting discouraged. Like, that is a, that's something you have to practice. Well, one of the, Well, one of the things that I think is really weird and hard about our profession about acting mm-hmm. is that um, you have to have this incredibly thin skin and like all of this emotional access when you do your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like immediately you have to be able to put that away and have this very thick skin mm-hmm. dealing with disappointment and rejection all the time. Yeah. And the other thing I find really hard is that you're constantly being made to want things that you don't really want. Oh. Like you get an audition and it's for like, Mm. Joe Schmo TV show where you're going to play the wife of Joe Schmo and mm-hmm. you're going to have three lines and you're like I don't want to do this and they're like yeah but it's a, it's a big opportunity right. it's on ABC Family There's it's going to change your life yeah. it's money and then like you put in the work for the audition and you get a call back and then all of a sudden you're like I got to be Joe I Schmo's wife <laughs> I do want it I do want it this is going to change my life and then they're like mm, they went with this other actress and you're like I'm going to blow my brains out and it's like what totally. I didn't even care about Joe Schmo's wife so- until two minutes ago and then like i've been made to care about this thing that's so beneath me and it's so outside of my it's like (laughs) it's so outside of my um uh control like yeah you know so that's really i've never heard it put that way yeah that you you're fed things that you want and then you want them right and you're told (laughs) you should really want this yeah and you're like i don't yeah (laughs) um so that's really that's really hard and annoying. And I felt crazy. Mm. I felt like yeah. I just felt nuts. And I felt nuts also because I was like, you know, also when you're that age, when like 22, 23, when just starting out for me, mm-hmm. but I think any actor are starting out, people don't know who you are yet, 
right? And yes. at that age, in a way, you don't 100% no. know who you are, right? And so you're trying to figure it out, and you're also like, trying to teach people how to read you. Mm-hmm. And so I was constantly yeah. like being put in rooms that were actually the wrong rooms for me to be in. Sure. And hmm. like trying to convince people like, no, I could be Joe Schmo's daughter. Mm-hmm. Like, y- you know, I could be peppy. Like whatever the the qualities are when you're like, oh, they really wanted a different actress. Right. But like I was young enough that no one knew yet who I was. Including yourself. You have to convince yourself that you're Joe Schmo's daughter too. Exactly. Yeah. And it's so weird. it's just this weird thing where like I felt really far away from myself. Yeah. And – I was living far away from my family. I was living in New York, and mm-hmm. my whole family was on the West Coast. And I didn't have that many friends here yet. And I was kind of unmoored. Like, mm. um, I had a couple really good friends. But other than that, I was kind of at sea in New York. Mm-hmm. And, like, basically, if you're a young, pretty enough woman, you can drink for free in New York. <laughs> Yes. Right? And so I was just like drinking all the time. <laughs> really? Oh, no. Yeah, with strangers. You know what I mean? Wow. Like I was like going out with girlfriends and then like staying out all night. I lived in the East Village. And like. This is fascinating. Wow. You know, I just had this like vision of myself like, oh, I'm like trying to fill a hole yeah. inside yeah. by like giving myself adrenaline rushes, like Mm. sleeping with strangers, going out too much, like, and then I also like, because I had had an eating disorder in my teens, I really didn't want to become like a gym bunny. Uh I wasn't letting myself Uh, do that. But I had this like, oh, this is why people, I had this realization, like this is why actors end up like becoming addicted to the gym because it mm -hmm. feels productive. Like Mm -hmm. you're doing something for yourself. Anyways, Mm. this is all a way of saying I picked up that play that I started in school and was like, I'm just going to finish this. Like I had written a first act. It's like I'm going to finish it so that I have something to do that puts me in touch with myself. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up – I thought it was okay. And I gave it to (laughs) my agent who gave it to an agent in my agency and she thought it was okay. And gotcha. she sent it to the Humana Festival, and mm-hmm. they did not accept it. And oh. then I went, and I did a lot more work on it, and they accepted it the next year. Okay. okay. And then my agent at the time, my lit agent at the time, Joyce Cate, who I love, um, was like, you should start your second play mm-hmm. because it will be very hard for you once this comes out. Like, if people like the play, it will be hard for you to start one. And if they don't like the play, it will be hard for you to start one. Oh, interesting. Now is when you got to strike while the iron is hot almost. Yeah, and also, like, before anyone has weighed in on your talent. <laughs> so mm, Yeah, I so that s- your next move isn't colored by that. Yeah. Yeah. So I started my second play... And then that sort of snowballed into a life where my life is split. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I am so, so grateful to have that access because um, it really has put me in the driver's seat in my Mm. own mind Mm -hmm. in a way, like even more than what being able to write for yourself or whatever as an actor, Mm -hmm. like 
people always say, write for yourself. And I'm like, you write for me. Like, it's not that interesting <laughs> to me to write for myself. Okay. But like yeah. being able to, to have access to my creativity that is my own mm. feels um, like it has saved my sanity. Right, because it sounds like at that at that low point in your early twenties in New York, like if people asked you like, "What do you do?" would would the answer just have been like, "I'm a working actor," right? Yeah, I think I would have said, "Yeah, I'm an actor." I'm yeah, trying to be an actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. And th- this gave you a whole other, because as therapeutic as acting is, as you say, it's not something that actors can just. Nobody works all the time as an actor. <laughs> There's right. always going to be dry spells. For sure. And so if during your dry spells you can switch gears into this other world that another form of creativity, like, do it. I mean, one of the weird things I think that nobody talks about is that, like, that on and off quality happens even when things are going really well. Uh-huh. Like, there are mm. years uh-huh. where I have done, like, you know, where I've worked back to back all year long. Mm -hmm. And then the next year I haven't, I've done like one tiny job, you know, Mm -hmm. like I basically, I worked for the year that I shot the Buster Scruggs, the Coen brothers movie that is about to come out. Mm -hmm. I worked as an actor for like six weeks on that movie Mm -hmm. and that's it. The whole year. The whole year. Oh, wow. I think I did one day on The Deuce earlier that year. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, were you writing? Yeah, I was writing, and I was in the editing room on Wildlife. Okay, good, good, gotcha. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, some of it was by choice of, like, okay, I want to be available to be. And you just had a baby. Well, I hadn't had a baby yet. Okay. This was was all last year. That was all 2017. Okay. Yeah. Congratulations on your new baby. Thank you. Um, Let's talk about Buster Scruggs. So six weeks of filming. I think it was five weeks, but I think I had a a week of pre-production in okay. Santa Fe. And oh, this is all in like the desert in Santa in New Mexico. The first week I was in Santa Fe, and then we were in um, Western Nebraska, actually. Wow. And had you ever done a shoot like in a place like that? Yeah. It's so like isolated, and it's a it's a movie like most westerns. It's about the setting. It's about that like getting into that place. Totally. I had done one other, like, Canastoga wagon movie, uh-huh. um, Kelly Reichert's movie, Meek's Cutoff. Oh, uh-huh. Which we shot in 2009. And um, I, like, oh, so that was in eastern Oregon on the Salt Flats okay, out there, cool. mm-hmm. which was very remote and um, more remote than where we were shooting in Nebraska by far. Um but I really loved getting to be, I mean, honestly, to be in Eastern Oregon or Western Nebraska in these kind of like rural communities, like it's not a part of my life normally no. at all. Yeah. So getting to have that experience and like experience the beauty, the natural beauty mm-hmm. of our country mm. um, was kind of phenomenal. Yeah. And that must help get you in the zone. For sure. You're yeah. like looking around. You don't see anything but what you're supposed to be seeing. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it makes you feel you're good. You're like, are there snakes in the grass? Like, yeah, all that. <laughs> we had a big we had a big problem with rattlesnakes in Eastern Oregon really? on, on Kelly's movie. Yeah, we had to have <laughs> someone whose job it was to have like a big plastic um, Tupperware on set um, to put rattlesnakes in. <laughs> <laughs> put the snakes in the Tupperware? Uh-huh. <laughs> with like a lid? Mm-hmm. 
Oh, okay. To then like drive like them you... out to a different place. Wow. <laughs> so awesome. Um, and with and with Buster Scruggs too, I feel like there's a lot of that process too is costuming. Yeah. Is that true? That there's like an outside in approach of um your bonnet acting in this movie is really sure. lovely. Thanks. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I always feel that way about costume. Costume is cool. a really important part of gotcha. my process for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the especially with period stuff, like mm-hmm. um for this movie, I did not wear a corset once we were on the trail um, mm. because it seemed like uh, I wasn't traveling with any other women. It seemed like I wouldn't have any help getting dressed, and it's very hard mm. to put on a corset on by yourself. Okay. Um, and it also seemed like kind of like, okay, we did enough reading that it felt like, well, maybe they didn't all wear corsets on the trail. Oh, and, okay. Um, but yes, like the way the undergarments make you breathe, the way, you know, bonnets really um, limit your peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. So mm. a kind of feeling of like really trusting other people to watch out for you. Like mm. there's just a ton, you know, the heaviness of the skirts, like the physical life of it, yes. But also what you see when you look in the mirror, like mm. I feel like one of the things that maybe like makes it harder for me to be cast generically, but I really appreciate about myself is that like, I think mm-hmm. I can look a lot of different ways. Like mm-hmm. I think, um, I think that that's a good quality for an actor to have. And totally. I really appreciate the way that like different hair and makeup and also clothes can tell me a different story when I look in the mirror and mm. um, like, um, on Olive Kittredge, for instance, mm-hmm. like that character seemed so, um, like they call her Denise the mouse, and mm. that sort of picture of how a mouse moves and um, how sensitive a mouse is, and it's um, um, uh, I'm, uh, whiskers. I keep wanting to say antenna, um, <laughs> and um, yeah. like I thought, like I have to find a little haircut that makes me feel like gotcha. that and you know little things like that mm. like um so i really appreciate a costume designer like mary zofries mm-hmm. um on buster scruggs who's been working with the cohen's forever mm-hmm. like coming in and being like here she is like she had already picked out like the silhouettes the Ugh. fabrics and and so i had like a mask to step into like mm-hmm. an image and then it was just about like oh what is the hair and how do these things fit? And mm-hmm. um, and you said breathing. Well, the clothes affect the way you breathe. Mm-hmm. Like when I played Masha and the Seagull on Broadway, I had a corset for that. And I had this feeling of like having to breathe from a very low place. Like you can't mm. breathe from your belly or your ribs Mm. because they're being squished so you're sort of like breathing from like your vagina your groin yeah Yeah. sure sure. and um like that informed yeah what was going on that's yeah that's so cool but i i think about the breathing factor as being more a part of theater than film or tv yeah except you know if you read like walter murch's book about editing, he talks mm. about cutting on the blink, 
but oh, uh-huh. I think you're also like cutting to the breath. Like if you read about yeah. like Shakespearean acting, for instance, like there's this idea that iambic pentameter, which is what Shakespeare wrote in, mm-hmm. um, is naturally suited to the length of a human thought or the right. length of a human breath. And I had an acting teacher who taught me, like, oh, um, that, like, essentially our brains tell our lungs how much air to take for the thought that we're having. Mm-hmm. So um, when you <laughs> hear someone sigh at the end of a sentence like that, mm-hmm. they've um, withheld something that they were thinking. Ah, mm-hmm. like they haven't said it. They haven't said it. That's and so... Cool. so Little things like that, like I think that you can see when I think sometimes when someone you see like um like a like a a hallmark for me of like oh that's bad acting is uh-huh. when I see someone having to take a breath in the middle of a thought. Oh sure sure sure. And you're like oh like but a human wouldn't do that. A human wouldn't do right. it exactly. But knowing oh if I exhale here it looks like i'm thinking something i'm not saying like Mm. i think breath is i think breath is so telling on screen especially Mm -hmm. like because you have the use of the close-up you can see like you know in adr they're always having you add breathing noises gotcha Uh uh-huh but how often is that a conscious thing where you're like on a technical level in this i mean maybe it's especially for close-ups where you're like I'm going to exhale here to indicate that I have a thought that I didn't say. I think that falls under the rubric of, like, things that go into your homework that then you throw away. Like, yeah, I think if okay. you're thinking about your breath when you're on screen, you're, n- it's, you're, you're not actually doing your work. You're not going to come across natural. Right. Yeah. But, like, often when I'm working on something in preparation, I'll feel like, I don't know, like, I'll plant things like that for myself, like, as opportunities. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Like, you're going through the script, and you're like, this is a possibility. Yeah, I started doing this thing, actually, on all of Kittredge, because we had to work very quickly on that. It's the first time I've worked in television. Oh, cool. Um, Really? I mean, I had done, like, a couple episodes of things, but it's the most I had ever done on a TV schedule. And even though that was a mini-series, like, we still had to work. TV. You had to work much faster mm. than you have to work in film mm. for the most part. And so I wasn't used to the pace. And after my first day, I was like, oh, f- I'm going to feel really bad yeah. if I don't do a lot of my prep beforehand. Mm-hmm. I had done a ton of prep, but I hadn't done a lot of prep um, on like acting choices. You know, like sure. I had done a lot of work on the character. Mm-hmm. So I went home. I had two weeks off before I had to shoot again. And I like went through the script and laid out for myself like, okay, if you get three takes, like oh, here's something to work on. Things. Yeah, here's something mm. for the first take, something for the second take, something for the third take. So that wow. I was giving myself like, I wanted to give the director a vocabulary to have in the editing room for the character. Hmm. And so getting to make some of those choices ahead of time and then like threw stuff away on set or, you know, Lisa Cholodenko, the director, would come over and give me something different to work on. Mm -hmm. But like in the absence of knowing how much time I would get on screen, I really tried to make it count. And I've sort of done some version of that since because I found it really useful. Yeah. And it's that same Stanislavski idea of like you do as much homework as you can and then you throw it away. Yeah. But I love the idea, too, of, like, I'm going to do the homework so that 
I know that about the time constraint. Yeah. Because <laughs> given your own devices and unlimited time and resources, you would probably get so in your head about just like doing the little revisions and going back and thinking yeah. about all the possibilities. And it's kind of like, just go for it. Just- yeah. I mean, I think that I have... I think I probably have that impulse in writing because you know you're not going to get it as an actor. Like, even in Mm. a theater process where you're getting, like, a lot of time to rehearse a play, you still only get three or four weeks, Yeah, you know. True. Um, And so you're just, you know, and time is money in the theater or on a film set. So Mm -hmm. you're always trying to do as much work as you can on your own. um, Mm -hmm. And not waste people's time. And not waste people's time, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think, um, the other thing, I think a lot of the stuff that I do to prepare as an actor is just to keep myself from, um, being frightened to be creative in front of other people, uh, um, amazing. on someone else's time. Uh-huh. Okay. So, like, when you're on set and so, and the DP has come up to you and said, like, okay, I've lit you so that this this light over here mm-hmm. hits your eye. And if you move an inch to the right and then you move – I'm not exaggerating. I've had DPs say this. When you move an inch to the left, you're not going to be lit. Yeah. So yeah. you really need to hit this mark exactly. Mm. And so, like, don't move your head when you're talking. Like, you want to stay inside of your light. And then you have someone else coming up to you and, like, putting powder all over your face and then they're like we're losing our light so you know we're going to try to do this in one like you need to still have access to your creativity even in Mm. that circumstance right and I feel like maybe some actors don't psych themselves out but I find it very difficult to like stay with myself Mm -hmm. and give myself that permission when I feel all of Mm. those constraints around Mm. me give yourself permission that's what it is. Yeah, permission. To sure. be creative or to, to be in touch with your creativity. Yeah. 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 I started doing this thing where I like bring a notebook to set mm-hmm. and I will write to the character and say like, what do you need? Oh, wow. And like, oh my God. then they have the, I have them like write back to me and tell me like how they're feeling and like what they need to come to the table Mm. and it's like just a way of writing to my unconscious really but Mm -hmm. um like a lot of like things like that that just sort of help it feel like my private space that's thank you for sharing like what feels like a very intimate detail of the process (laughs) (laughs) i love tricks like that and i also feel like those are exactly the kinds of tricks that some actors are like I'm not sharing that information with anyone because it's it's private. And yeah. I had an acting teacher in high school who said like um if you if you reveal a tiny hidden like the secret to a character or the secret to a I think he was talking about in reference to being able to cry actually. If you reveal what it is that's triggering that if you have a go-to, then you'll never be able to do it again. I'll tell you something so funny on that, <laughs> which is that I did this movie this spring while I was pregnant, um, while I was, like, fairly pregnant, uh-huh. um, like, 18 to 25 weeks pregnant, which is about halfway through. Um, and uh, I was working with child actors. Mm-hmm. And there was a scene where I had to cry really hard. And 
sometimes like this thing happens when a scene when I know a scene like that is coming where it's like sort of like my brain's been working on it privately and mm-hmm. I'll show up that day and like that emotion is there for me and I can't tell you how it's there and I can't tell you why mm-hmm. but like it is and I can feel it like a wave that I have to ride you know so I went in in a really good space that day I could feel like the emotion is there for me like I just need to like time it properly and like mm. and I had this kid who I was working with who was 12 I think Jack who is a <laughs> real sweetie Mm -hmm. but he did not understand the thing that your acting teacher was telling me i mean was telling you and i we did a first take and i cried really hard (laughs) and then we were like resetting for a second take and i'm like trying to stay in this very zen place Uh and he like tugs on my shoulder and he's like i have a question to ask you i'm like jack not now and he's like no it's really important it's for the scene and i was like okay what is it he was like what do you think about to (laughs) to make yourself cry like that and i'm like you know what, I'm going to tell you later, but I'm not going to tell you right now. <laughs> he's like, now. okay. And then like second take, I cry. Ugh. And he like tugs on my thing. He's like, can you tell me now? And I'm like, no, Jack, I'm going to tell you after the scene. And it was like that all day long. I was like, I'm going to f***ing kill this kid. And he was like, he at one point he was like, I, I want you to tell me what you think about because someday what? I'm going to have to cry in a scene like that. And I want to think about what you're thinking about. And I was like, how do I explain anything about what I'm doing to this child? And like, totally. also he's you a child. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, like, ugh, like, what a wild card. Uh, if yeah. I was a child, like I wouldn't, I'd be asking the same question. Like, right. it's not his fault. He's not an actor yet. Like, anyways, it was just hilarious. And, and you're was, pregnant. Yeah. This is pre- acting while pregnant. Oh, God. <laughs> That's oh, amazing. I actually really love talking about crying with people people who are really good at it because it's, no one has the same answer for how they do it. And no one, there's definitely no, um, <laughs> I was going to say there's no article on, like, how to cry, but I've literally written an article for Backstage.com. <laughs> <laughs> but that was more just, like, an amalgam of different people's advice on the on the thing. And it, it sounds like, yeah, you got to get in the right zen place. And the timing thing is tricky, too, especially when you're on a film set and you have the makeup person in your face and the totally. lighting person. Like, I did this movie called The Private Lives of Pippa Lee that um, Rebecca Miller wrote and directed, mm-hmm. like, 10 years ago now. And... When I was doing that movie, there was a scene that I had with Robin Wright where I play mm. her daughter and my father's just died and I like come to her and I'm very upset. And Rebecca asked me, you know, do you have any problem crying? And I was like, I'm a waterwork, which I was. I was like, I'm fine. <laughs> like, you know, I I had just done three plays in a row mm. in which I had to I had to cry in all of them. And I was like, no problem, bring it on. I did mm-hmm. it night after night. And we did, because she was like, if you have a problem crying, like we'll do the close-ups first so we can catch you crying in your close-up and then you can mm-hmm. fake it on the wide. I'm, like, I'm fine. So we do the wide. And I have like this miraculous emotional, like we do another, we do another. And then we go in for the close-up and I went completely dry. Oh and I'd never gone dry before and I've really rarely gone dry gone since. Dry. But like, I was like, like I promised, yeah. And as soon as I promised, it was just like I'd set oh, myself it's the up. Promise, interesting. Yeah, I don't know. That's the getting in your head thing, right? Yeah, that for just sure. Happens. It just yeah. happens. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't know. There was I. I have this. Um, I studied with the acting teacher Larry Moss, who is mm-hmm. so great, and he said something that I found so useful, 
which is that I was talking to him about like actions and objectives, which is something that, you know, it's acting 101, mm-hmm. it's building blocks, but it's something that I had never found particularly helpful. Like, um, I always felt like it put me squarely in my head. Like I had this director who I really admire and respect, but his process was to go around the table and write out loud, say what your action is on any given line. Like Mm. to seduce you, to belittle you, Mm. like, you know, like that. And Hmm. it put me in my head in such a profound way where, like, it put me right in my writer's brain, like, what's the right word? Like, oh. you know? Um, Not an instinctual place. Right like at a, all. Yeah. And I was talking to Larry about that because Larry talks a lot about actions and objectives in his book. Um, and he said something like, he said something like, an uh, objective should just be an image that moves you, like, oh. that actually moves something in you. An image. Yes, like like if your objective is to go home, like an mm-hmm. image of home that makes you long for your actual home. Mm-hmm. Like whatever that thing is, like for me, it's like mm, I'm standing in my childhood kitchen and my parents are both cooking and like my sister is doing her homework on the floor. Like that feels like home to me, like in a way where I'm like I can feel the longing in my hands, you know, like I wish uh. I could time travel, right? Mm-hmm. And like hmm. it, he was basically like, if the, if you don't have an image that moves you, like you don't have a good objective yet. Uh-huh. And actions and objectives are own or like he was basically like any tool, but actions and objectives are only helpful if they're helpful to you. Like if it hmm. if it does something that inspires your creativity, if it like engages uh-huh. your guts. So having the perfect action or perfect objective for the text, hmm. like there's no such thing. There's only the one that like moves you or doesn't move you. Okay. And like an image or a uh, can go dry too like aha uh-huh. um so like if, if you it, use it, it too much maybe or i don't know it's just like if it no longer moves you you have to move on you have okay. to like pick something else mm-hmm. especially when i'm learning something like if i'm learning something for an audition or i'm learning something mm-hmm. to memorize i write it out so that it's in my handwriting so i feel like it's in your handwriting so i feel yeah. like i possess not type it. it either no yeah. i handwrite it and then and i do it over and over again but I will then like put lines across the page where I think something new happens in the scene. Okay. Like every time something changes, mm-hmm. either attacked or a piece of information comes mm-hmm. out or mm. every time there's a change for my character. Um, and that's useful to me. And is it more focused on verbs than on adjectives? I don't use any words. Okay. I Because I, I don't see. find them useful. But I do find it very useful to say, like, something has changed here, something's changed there. Mm. And, like, somewhere in my head, I know what that change is. Mm-hmm. But oh, cool. I sort of go, like, oh, like, there's a new tact happening here. Like, she has a new, hmm. she's trying to get what she wants in a new way. And I can see that there's a change there. That's super cool. Um, Rather than putting a name to it, it it allows it to like stay in the subconscious. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that like something has changed. That's a sufficient descriptor of what's going on. You don't want to get into more detail than that. Well, and then on it's about my own yourself for too. something. Like uh-huh. in a rehearsal room on a play, you start to have those conversations as a group. Gotcha. Right? Mm-hmm. 
And then you are sort of putting a name to something because you have to have a way of talking about it.、Mm. And and often, if there's a, a difference of opinion of how something should play,、mm. it's very useful to be able to say, "This is the way I'm thinking about it,"、gotcha. so that someone else can say, "Oh, I'm thinking about it the same way. So where are we going wrong?"、Mm. Or, "Oh no, I'm thinking about it in this very different way. Right, like, let's、okay. try this different thing."、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, being on the other side of the table has made me sure a very different actor. Okay, as well. Yes, in that regard. How much casting have you done? A bunch. Okay, I love to be in the casting chair. How did、um, Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal get involved in this movie? Um, well, Carrie and I did the Seagull together on、uh, Broadway ten、mm-hmm. years ago, and we shared a dressing room, and we became very close friends, <laughs> and. Uh, she has remained a very dear friend in my life.、Um, she's also an extraordinary actor.、Mm-hmm. And when we were starting to put the casting together on this, we started with that role of Jeanette.、Mm-hmm. And we, when we realized that Carrie could be the right age for this part, she plays a mother of a teenager. But it's 1960, and there's enough in the text that. Implies that she had him very young.、Mm-hmm. Um, we jumped at the opportunity to send the script to her.、Mm-hmm. She read it and called us back within like an hour and a half,、um, <laughs> which was a miracle. And we're so lucky. She signed on. She's, I think, very very special in this part.、Um, oh yeah. And then Paul was doing a movie with Jake. He was、mm-hmm. doing this movie Okja with him, and they've known each other a long time. We actually all met at Carrie's wedding,、um, mm. and he's done two movies with Jake, and、uh, they get along really well. And Paul was putting together; we were putting together the the financing and stuff for the film, and Jake had just started a production company and was talking to、mm-hmm. Paul about it and. Asked to read the script, and it just sort of fell into place.、Um, and then Paul had worked with Bill Camp、um, mm. on this movie called Love and Mercy. Bill had played Paul's dad,、mm-hmm. and obviously we've been massive fans of his theater work for years.、Mm. So、um, once Jake and Carrie were in place, it, it felt like a good opportunity to get to work with Bill. He's wonderful in this part. Yeah. And then we have this kid who's the lead of our movie,、right. who's this amazing Australian actor who sent. Oh my god, a, he's Aussie. He is、oh. Aussie, Aussie, oi, oi, oi. He's、uh, so good, and he was the last kid we saw, or one of the last kids. We had really not、mm. found the person we were looking for yet, and it felt really scary because it's such an important part,、yeah. and. Um, a lot of it plays out in his reactions to things.、Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. So we needed someone who could convey a lot without doing very much.、Hmm. And he sent in a tape from Australia, and it was all there.、Um, hmm. We we called him back. We gave him instructions to retape because we wanted to see if he could take direction,、mm-hmm. um, and to see if it was like a fluke. That、mm-hmm. he sent this gorgeous tape in, but no, he's the real <laughs> he deal. He can take direction. Yeah, that's key. Yeah. yeah. 
because um, being uh, it's it's always helpful, I think, for our listeners to hear about people on either side of the table, and how as an actor that gives you an amazing perspective. I'll tell you the biggest things I've learned. <laughs> yes, tell us everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I was first starting out. I had a lot of antipathy towards the idea of, like, dressing the part. Uh Like, I was like, if they can't (laughs) see it when I walk in the room, like. Right. And then I started auditioning people for my first play, and I suddenly realized, like, oh, it's not for the auditioners. It's not that, like, Mm. wearing a nice dress and heels for the part tells the auditioners I can play the part. It's for me as an actor. It's what it does to my body. Like, we had someone come in for a role of like a person who really cared about their appearance and she mm. came in like from the gym in like gym clothes sure. and like sweaty hair and none of her pride in her body was there. Like it was, uh-huh. if she had been able to do that in gym clothes, like God bless, but they weren't helping her, right? They right, were like okay. hindering her mm. access to her, her body. Do things that help you, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so then I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> never mind. Um, the other thing is that, like, nine times out of ten, you can tell the instant a person walks in the room if they're wrong for the role. Oh, my God. Like, really. Huh. Like, if if you're really wrong. Like, if you're in the ballpark, no. Uh-huh. But, like, if, you're, if it's really not your part, you can be the best actor in the world. Yeah. Like, you can be virtuosic in your reading. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter because it's, like, the wrong animal, right? Yeah. And I used to really beat myself up when they would say it's not going your way. Like, it was really, Mm. I mean, I still do, but it was really hard for me when I'm very sensitive. Like, I really don't handle the rejection part of this well at all. Sure. And and that helped a little bit of knowing, like, oh, it's not, sometimes it's just not my part. Sometimes I'm just the wrong animal. Um, Totally. And then the other thing, which is, like, has to do with being being in process is that, being on the other side, I have learned to say yes when a director asks you to make an adjustment. Even if oh. you think it's wrong, uh-huh. even if you like feel that they don't understand the character at all sure. and how can they ask you to do this. And, and yeah. like there's a reason that they're asking you. It might have to do with what it needs to get out of the other person. It might mm. have to do with showing the playwright that some color isn't there on the page. Mm. It might be a stepping stone to mm-hmm. get you all on the same page about what the character is mm-hmm. like. Like, it might be that you don't understand the character yet and that the conception that you're working with isn't useful for the storytelling. Like, right. there are one million reasons that a director might ask you to make an adjustment. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, there's some use to it, even you if the use it. is, okay, well, that was a bad note. Like, uh-huh. It's really, really important to say yes Just when the director yes. asks you. And I used to be a f***ing pain in the ass. Before I realized <laughs> that, I would like a director would give me a note, and I'd be like, I just don't see the character that way. And then it would be a and conversation. Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. I mean, like I was a very ballsy young person. Sure, I'm sure, much sure. ballsier than I am now. But uh, <laughs> you know, I would, I would be like, I don't, I don't understand. Explain the note yeah. to me, like whatever mm. the thing was. And it would take and up rehearsal time. And the thing of like, time. I know the character and maybe you don't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it would take up rehearsal time. Yeah. It wasn't that useful. Mm. Yeah. It's almost like the that's uh, maybe give the director the benefit of the doubt is good advice. Because like, yeah. 
You don't know where that note is coming from. Yeah, Yeah, there are a bajillion different factors. Henry Winkler said right here in this room, he said that um, (laughs) his way of putting that was more like nine times out of 10, if a director gives you a note and you then then say, okay, got it. Yes, I'll make that change. And then you play it exactly as you played it and you don't actually change anything, that director will go, see, what did I tell you? Well, maybe that (laughs) works for Henry Winkler. Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) That's excellent advice. Um, I think we should wrap. I think we should wrap it up. Great. This is, everything is, you're giving us, this is gold. Do you have any, like, disastrous, what's your, like, worst audition horror story? On either side of the table, I guess. My worst audition horror, I, as a, on the other side of the table, you're just praise. you want, I, I wish I could give every actor, like, a hug, tell them how amazing, they, you know, like, uh-huh. it's not, the only horrifying thing is that you want so badly for everyone to walk away feeling good, and obviously most people can't. Right. Uh, hmm. I'll tell two stories from the other side, from the acting side, <laughs> which is that I auditioned for this horror film, I really wanted the part. It was about a girl being eaten from the inside out by a demon. And there was a okay. lot. I mean, this was, I was young and like, I just wanted to be a working actor so badly. And it was actually pretty well written. And I was like, mm. I'm, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And I w- did so much work on it. And like, there's so much description of this girl, like f- her flesh falling off of her. She's like looking worse and worse mm. over the course of the movie. And I went in for my I, I got a call back and they were like, my agents were like, okay, you got a call back. And the only adjustment they want you to make is that they want you to come in wearing more makeup and mm. a cute top. Oh. And I was like, no. And it's no. one of the only times I've said no <laughs> right. to an audition in my entire career. But I was like, I, if that is their adjustment, I am not coming in because That's I was so, adjustment. I was so mad about it. Yeah. It was a real adjustment. That's, yeah. And then the other, like, actual horror story is that there was this movie that this really kind of fancy director was making. And the movie did not turn out well, so I am not going to say who it was. Oh. <laughs> but it was it was someone who was, like, a critically acclaimed director. Mm-hmm. And he was making a movie, and there was a really good part for someone my age. And it got down to me and one other girl. Mm-hmm. And the director had not been in any of my auditions. Like, it had all been me taping in New York. Mm-hmm. But the other girl was in New York, and I was in New York. So oh. he came to New York for the final callback. And I had memorized, like, 25 pages of material. <laughs> you know, like, so much. You really there do were your four homework. scenes. Well, also, it was a really good part. Mm-hmm. And it was down to me and one other person, like, you this know, wasn't one of those you were brainwashed to want it, like you genuinely wanted it. I really wanted yeah. it. And um, it was really high stakes. All the scenes were mm. like weeping and screaming. Oh. And, you know, it was like very dramatic. Mm-hmm. So I had done all of this work and I go in for the callback. And I walk in and he's on his computer mm. doing email. And he does not look at me. Uh-huh. And I sat down and I waited for him to look at me so that we could start. And eventually he looked up and said, uh, what are you waiting for? And I was like, oh, uh, you want me to start? And he was like, yeah. And looked back down at his email. And he did not look at me for the entire audition. Ugh. He did his email for my entire audition. He typed the entire time, typed and scrolled. 
And were there I, any other people in the room? There no. was a reader. Oh, okay. Who was the casting director? Okay. And she was horrified. Oh. And I was horrified. Oh. And I, uh, every time I would finish a scene, I would like look over at him, and he wouldn't even look oh. at me. And then or say just move to the yeah, just move multiple to the next scenes. One. Yeah. Yeah, it was like four or five scenes. <sighs> And then, so and then I like got up and left, and I did not get the part. But I also was like very relieved not to like get the good part. riddance. Yeah, yeah, it was so horrifying. Um, what is your number one piece of advice in terms of um, in terms of the thick skin? I love the idea of like you have to have a really thin skin mm. doing, for example, doing an audition. And then the thick skin, I feel like the transition, you have, the moment you leave the room is when you have to immediately put the armor like back on. For sure. How do you do that? Like what, what is your, that's what actors have to do. So how, what do people need to know about that process? Well, like when I walked out of my audition for the Coen Brothers thing, mm. I thought I had not done as well as I wanted to. Mm. I just wanted that job so badly. I wanted to play that role so badly. Mm-hmm. And I felt like maybe I didn't do everything that I needed to do. And I walked down 7th Avenue um, to our editing room, which is <laughs> was all the way on the west side, all the way, you know, in Tribeca. Mm-hmm. So I walked from like 45th and 8th to Tribeca <laughs> in some sort of like fugue state. And mm-hmm. I um, passed a pet store on the way and I like went in and held a puppy. <laughs> So that that's one way to do it. That's really good. Um, but honestly, my better answer is that when I was younger, I cared so much about my work and like my quote unquote career. And mm-hmm. I just prioritized it above everything. Like mm-hmm. I remember when my best friend got married, um, I had been cast in like an independent film that was a good movie, but like I didn't need to be doing it. Mm. And I, um, it's not like it was going to move the needle in my life in any way, financially Mm -hmm. or career wise or anything. Right. Um, and I knew when her wedding was and I got them to block out like a day on either side so Mm -hmm. that I could go and be at her wedding but I didn't get to be there for the lead up. I didn't get to help mm. make the house look nice and all the things that you want to do. I flew in and did the wedding and flew out. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like a real shame that that was the case. Mm. Anyways, caring so much about my career also meant that like every job was like devastating when I didn't get it. Like every audition felt like right. life and death stakes. And mm. my relationship with acting like in my early 30s maybe started to change where I started to feel like kind of heartbroken like this career this job is really hard and Mm. um it doesn't get easier and I look at people I know who are much more successful than I am and they're waiting around for the phone to ring just like I am and um Hmm. I just felt like oh this is not a recipe for happiness and like Mm-hmm. Why did I choose this life? Like I had a real like existential crisis around that. Mm-hmm. And I came to the other side of it really thinking like, okay, the answer for me is that I still love acting. So how do I still make a happy life? Mm. And I really have done it 
by investing in my life. Like, I think mm. for a while I felt like my life was only worth what, um, like, what I could get out of it career-wise or something. Like, sure. like that, that my worth was being determined by my work. Mm. And really investing in my friendships, investing in my life, like, making my home a really nice place mm. for myself to be, like, n- prioritizing myself and my friends and my family has made me so much happier as a Mm. person and um that's what i would recommend to people like if you have something to go home to even if it's not a relationship even if it's just a relationship with yourself like it makes a big difference yeah yeah that's excellent advice i have i have found that to be true i've learned that a a lot about that in the last year or so that it's about that I think of it as a work-life balance essentially Mm. where you're not relying on your work to be yeah like your value or your be all and end all that's exactly what I mean yeah also you got to do work that brings you joy I think that's important well there's that too (laughs) I mean that's the other thing is that there there aren't a ton of them but there have been jobs that I've taken just because I really needed to pay rent. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. there's no shame in that, but it does, mm. it does make showing up for work hard sometimes, mm-hmm. like really showing up. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I'm grateful to those jobs because they let me do off-Broadway plays. Yeah, um, sure, yeah. And, and that's an, itself a kind of balance, but sometimes, Sometimes the joy that your work is bringing you is just the joy of the paycheck. And that's okay. <laughs> that's a great way of putting that. Yeah. Zoe, thank you so much. Thank this you is awesome. so much. Listeners are going to get a lot out of this. In the Envelope, an awards podcast, is recorded at Lotus Productions, Hyperbolic Audio, and Big Yellow Duck in New York City, and Soundbox LA, Mark Grouse Studios, and Buzzies in Los Angeles. Like, rate, subscribe, tell your friends, and follow us on Twitter at In the Envelope. Thanks, as always, to producer, editor, and all-around podcast extraordinaire, Jamie Muffet, and thank you to the team at Backstage the most trusted name in casting. That's Peter Rapoport, Rowan Al-Khatib, Francis Ramos, Caitlin Watkins, Lauren Rout, Mark Stinson, and especially Casey Howe. For more awards and industry coverage, head over to Backstage.com. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time for another glimpse in the envelope. <laughs>